Welcome to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Dr. Rutland is a world-renowned leadership expert. He is a New York Times best-selling author, and he has served as the president of two universities. The Leader's Notebook is brought to you by Global Servants. For more information about Global Servants, please visit our website, globalservants.org. Here is your host, Dr. Mark Rutland. Have you ever read anything that on the surface made no sense, but the longer you read it, the more you thought about it, it actually did make sense. And then at the same time, it seemed to be discouraging, but the longer you thought about it and the more you researched it, it turned out to be encouraging. Hello, I'm Mark Rutland. Welcome to The Leader's Notebook. I want to be talking today about the God of the unlikely. There are multiple themes around which we build this podcast, uh, life and leadership and relationships and faith. They all come together when society looks like it's imploding. How do we lead in such times? How do we have faith in such times? What do such terrible times do to our relationships? And what does our faith say in those times? I'm so glad that you've joined me today for this episode, and I hope this will be encouraging to you. We live in discouraging times. There's no doubt about it. Uh, You ever just get to the point where you don't want to even open the newspaper or turn on the news? Every now and again, my wife says, you know, do you want to watch the news tonight? And I'll just say, no, let's uh, go on Netflix or something and see if we can find a Three Stooges movie. They're doing the same thing, and they're funnier than what's happening in Washington. So uh, it's just is a discouraging time. So what I want is to deal with some discouraging things and see how God can bring unlikely results out of those things. Let me begin with uh, reading this passage of Scripture, and it's, an, it's, again, an unlikely passage. It's the last verse of the book of Judges. It's very simple. It just says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, that's a confusing passage of Scripture. On the surface, it may even sound like a good thing. Oh, good, there was no king. But what it means is there was no presiding, no prevailing national ethos. Everybody just did what was right in his own eyes. It was a a time of moral, spiritual, political, and military confusion and setback. Israel was having a a very difficult time. The tribes were fighting with each other. Uh, People had no sense of of the law of what made things right or wrong. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That is not a positive verse, though it may sound a little bit like it to our American individualism. But it isn't. It means that there was nothing that presided over the country of Israel at that time, telling them what was right. There was no cohesive political unit. There was no uh, government. There were only tribal federations. So it's, it's a very discouraging verse at the end of a discouraging part of the book of Judges. The book of Judges itself has sometimes been called the book of champions, and that is true, and to a sense, there are champions in there, Samson and uh, Deborah and Barak and, um, and others, Gideon, Jephthah, but the book itself kind of oozes out into a mad scramble, a delta of sadness, 
Um, it, it ends with discouraging stories that are disheartening, the, the nation just descending into this um, unethical quagmire. And then it ends, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. When we do what is right in our own eyes, it causes a discouraging national picture, confusion. So I want to talk to you today about can God bring something positive out of an unlikely time like that? Let's, let's talk about unlikely things for just a minute. In the 1970s and 80s, there was a national park ranger that worked at the Shenandoah National Park. His name was Roy Sullivan. He was struck by lightning seven times. How unlikely is that? You know, if there was ever a storm, I I don't want to be standing by Roy Sullivan. Uh, In 1954, November of 1954, a woman named Ann Hodges was lying on her couch in Alabama when a black rock shot through the roof and struck her in the hip. They took the rock to the university and they analyzed it and said it was a meteorite, a chunk of a meteorite. I said the odds of that happening, of a meteorite striking a human being, are one in every 9,000 years, not one in every 9,000 people, one in every 9,000 years. In 2002, a husband and wife in Belmont, California, won two lotteries on the same day. They won a Fantasy Five for $126,000 and a Super Lotto Plus for $17 million on the same day. People who spend time figuring the odds on such things say that the odds of that happening are one in 24 trillion. However, these are just random episodes of long odds historical events. I'm talking about something different. As I read the Bible, it seems apparent to me that God is the God of the unlikely. He seems to love to move in unlikely times, using unlikely instruments to accomplish unlikely results. So look again at the passage at the end of Judges. It is an unlikely time, a time of moral collapse and spiritual confusion. When the people of God are surrounded by their enemies, they're deeply divided tribally. Uh, it's, it's a terrible time in Israeli history, but what comes of it? When one turns the page, literally turns the page from the last verse of the book of Judges, the next verse in the Bible is the book of Ruth. And it says, now it came to pass in the days when judges ruled and the book of Ruth starts. The book of Ruth is a wonderfully encouraging book, how in a time of famine and distress, uh, God brings this unlikely instrument, a Moabitess, a, a Gentile woman from uh, Moab back to Bethlehem with her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi, and that when they return back to Bethlehem, both of them widows, one Jewish, one uh, Gentile, uh, it is an unlikely moment for anything very good to come of that. And yet, these two impoverished women following a terrible time of famine uh, that stretched across both Israel and Moab, both of them widows, um, they return to Bethlehem. And in that, Ruth meets Boaz, and who is a wealthy relative 
of Naomi, her mother-in-law, and they get married, and their union leads in only four generations to the birth of King David, and from David to the birth of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So out of the unlikely ending of the book of Judges, there is the opening of the book of Ruth, and the book of Ruth leads quickly to the time of King David. When you turn the page from Ruth, literally turn the page from Ruth, the next book is the book of 1 Samuel. So from the mad scramble at the end of Judges to the beauty and love and romance and encouragement of Ruth to the prophetic ministry of Samuel and eventually to the wonder and majesty of King David, a man after God's own heart, and then subsequently, a thousand years later, to the birth of Messiah. So out of the most unlikely ending of an unlikely book, God unfolds his magnificent plan. Now, can that work in in human history? Uh, Certainly, the book of Judges is human history, but let's put it this way, non-biblical human history. So let me just give you a few examples. In 1738, England was in at least as bad a mess as Israel was at the end of the book of Judges. It was the height of what was called the gin craze. Uh, We think of gin now as just one of the alcoholic beverages, but it it was cheap, it was accessible to the poor, and it was the first major drug addiction craze of a, of a Western country. England fell into the into addiction to gin. In 1738, historians tell us that every year, every person per average, per person in, uh, in England was consuming 2.2 gallons. That means every person, that means even newborn infants, they weren't drinking 2.2 gallons, but it was average per capita. Think what that means to the people who were actually drinking gin. There were 7,000 gin mills, gin bars, in London alone in 1738 in a population of 650,000 people. Arithmetically, that works out to one in every 92 persons, men, women, children, infants, everyone, there was a gin bar. So I, I tried to work out what does that mean mathematically for us? I live in the Atlanta metropolitan area, the greater Atlanta metro area, more than 6 million people. So if that same ratio prevailed today, it would mean out of 6 million plus people, there would have to be 65,217 gin mills, or let's put it in modern terminology, crack houses. London in 1738 was filled with robbery, prostitution, disease, child sex trafficking, all in an effort to support the addiction to gin. What an unlikely time for anything good to come of it. But at that same time, God raised up John Wesley, a more unlikely instrument one can hardly imagine, a failed missionary. He was legalistically depressed, arguably neurotic, five feet, six inches tall, had a nasal, unappealing, high-pitched voice. And God used John Wesley to bring one of the greatest revivals, the greatest revival in the history of England, and one of the greatest revivals worldwide. The Wesleyan revival swept the world, literally. And it came at the most unlikely time through an unlikely instrument. 
Let's come a little bit closer. Let's leap the Atlantic Ocean to U.S. post-revolutionary war frontier, the wild, wild west. Now, remember, in 1798, when we say the wild west, we're not talking about Arizona and Texas. We're talking about Kentucky. And the wild west, Kentucky was wild. Alcoholism, avaricious land grabbing, uh, violence, sexual promiscuity, the, the roads, the frontier roads were dangerous, robbery prevailed. It was a terrible time. And yet out of that time in the late 18th century on the frontier, God used unlikely instruments, little churches in tiny little villages on the American frontier, in villages with uh, really enticing names like Muddy River and Cane Ridge and my personal favorite, Clay Lick. And there became, there was such a revival, a holiness move of God in those little villages that they became known as the Cane Ridge Revival. Now, certainly there's nobody listening to my voice who remembers 1798, but there just might be someone who remembers 1967. And if not, at least you can look it up. In 1967, the center, the epicenter of the what was called the, the hippie movement was the Haight-Ashbury District of San Francisco. It was a district of complete moral collapse. Free love, rebellion, drugs it was a, a terrible time. And, and if you remember the 1967 song, if you're going to San Francisco, be sure to wear some flowers in your hair because you're going to meet some loving people there. The summer of 1967 was supposed to be the summer of love. They went out to San Francisco to find free sex, free love, free drugs. And what they found instead were hardened street pimps who turned uh, little girls from uh, the Midwest into prostitutes. And they found uh, the Zodiac Killer and invented a new disease called AIDS. It was a terrible, terrible time. Rebellion, the anti-war fever, the conflict, the nation was deeply divided. People say to me all the time, the nation has never been as divided. The nation of the United States has never been as divided as it is right now, as polarized. And I always say that's, that's not historically accurate. There was this minor matter of the Civil War. And then furthermore, I remember the riots, the race riots of the 60s, the, the riots and uh, the shootings uh, that occurred at Kent State over the, over the Vietnam War. I, I remember a deeply divided country. What could possibly come of that? What would be the unlikely instrument that God would use to bring a revival in the United States? And he used the hippies themselves when they were burned out, burned down, discouraged, and had lost all sense of the, the joy and delight of the drugs and free love, they needed something. They still realized none of that worked for them. And what they turned to was the Lord. And out of all that mess came the Jesus people. They were beyond denomination, beyond uh, church, really. They were finding Jesus in in parks, on benches, with playing made-up choruses with acoustical guitars. And the, the hippies became the Jesus people. And the Jesus people led to the charismatic renewal movement, and one of the great spiritual movements of American history. These are just a few examples of unlikely instruments being used 
by God to produce unlikely results. What does it all mean? How, how can we find some encouragement for ourselves? We're living in an unlikely time for God to do much. All the riots in the cities of America, the, the polarization over the recent election, the political anger that prevails in the United States, the confusion in Washington, the, the hurt, the hate. Uh, now we're even experiencing all this racial confusion and racial separation. We really are dividing up into tribes in the United States, and it's, it's awful to see what's going on. So we say to ourselves, this looks like a pretty unlikely moment for God to do very much. I would submit to you this may be the perfect moment and that God may find very unlikely instruments. I'm not prophesying this. Please don't hear this. I'm not a prophet, neither a prophet nor the child of a prophet. I'm just saying, suppose God should say to himself, I need someone who will speak to the racial division in this country to bring peace and, and unity and love and forgiveness. Where can I find someone like that? What if he found someone in a KKK camp deep in the forest uh, training for race war? And that KKK guy finds God, repents of his sins, repents of his, of his racism and hatred, and turns to God, and God raises him up as a voice of peace and racial reconciliation. I'm not prophesying that. I'm saying that's just the kind of unlikely instrument God might produce for unlikely results. What if he says, I need someone to speak to the younger generation about respect for authority and, and return to classical virtues of obedience and modesty and and love and forgiveness and hard work. I need someone who can be a voice to the young generation about a return to, to the values and to the ways of life that can lead to success and peace and prosperity. Where would he find such an unlikely instrument? He looks into a, a riot happening in some city, and there's some Antifa thug that's about to knock the brains out of a policeman with his skateboard. And God says, there's my instrument. Maybe God lays his hands on that thug and pulls him up out of the gutter and out of the street and out of the violence and produces out of him a voice of, of a return to decency and peace and love and forgiveness and respect and integrity. I'm not prophesying that. I'm saying as I track the footprints of God through history, what I can see is that he seems to love unlikely moments, unlikely instruments to produce unlikely results. At the close of the century of the 19th century and the move into the 20th, there was a lot of the same confusion around the the close of that century, the change in transitions that we had between the 20th and the 21st century. And there were a lot of people that were making all kinds of wild prophecies and predictions, and, and uh, they were afraid that business and nations would collapse and all the rest of it. There was a man named William Seymour, a semi-literate African-American with only one eye. And God raised him up summoned him to an unlikely place, downtown Los Angeles, California, 
to an abandoned Methodist church that had then become a livery stable, which was subsequently abandoned. Can you imagine a more unlikely set of circumstances? The confusion of the early years of the turn of the century, the use of a semi-literate African-American during times of tremendous prejudice, the use of a of an abandoned church that had become a livery stable and then was abandoned, I suspect cleaning that out wasn't that easy of a job. Down on Azusa Street in Los Angeles, and there William Seymour began his ministry. And from it, from the Azusa Street revival, spreading worldwide, has become one of the great and most enduring revivals of all time. There are now worldwide 279 million classical Pentecostals. There are 305 million people who call themselves charismatics. So from the descendants of the hippies in 1967 and the descendants of a semi-literate one-eyed black man, there are 580 million worldwide spirit-filled believers. What, what an unlikely set of circumstances. One of the great religious movements of all times, worldwide Pentecostal charismatic movement, from two such unlikely sources in two unlikely seasons of time. I think about St. Paul. At a time of the church beginning in the first century, oppressed, um, persecuted, Lots of trouble on both sides, both from a, an, an angry and uh, resistant religious authority and, and an angry and resistant geopolitical authority, ancient Rome. And God says, I need an instrument. I need someone that can take the gospel of salvation by faith and move it beyond the parameters of Jerusalem into the Mediterranean world and into the Greco-Roman world that can spread this gospel of salvation by faith alone. Whom whom shall I choose? And God looks over the, the race of humanity and he sees an angry Pharisee who has really caused, in a sense, and contributed to the death of the first Christian martyr, St. Stephen, and who is on his way from Jerusalem to Damascus, Syria, with authority, with warrants of arrest from the Sanhedrin to find Jewish believers, put them in chains, and bring them under arrest back to Jerusalem. And God looks at him as he goes on the Damascus road, and God says, there's my perfect choice. What an unlikely choice. And yet from that unlikely choice... From Saul of Tarsus, that angry, hate-filled Pharisee, God raises up the most loving, gracious, empowered, spirit-filled of all Christian saints of that era who wrote most of the New Testament and through whom God spread the gospel of salvation by faith alone throughout the Greco-Roman world. What an unlikely choice. What an unlikely time and what unlikely results. Now, let me close with this. What does all this say to you personally as you're listening to this podcast? What does it say to you? It is that you also may be God's unlikely selection, God's unlikely instrument 
for some unlikely place or time and to produce some unlikely result. It may not be some worldwide revival, however it might be, but it might be just that there is someone to whom God is going to lead you, some opportunity, some occasion, someone to whom you would never imagine that you would have access. And God may give you unlikely favor with that person. It could be in a parking lot of a convenience store. It could be in the mayor's office of the city where you live. It could be with a policeman. It could be with a criminal. But God may open some door of utterance for you. And you just think, I, who am I? I'm, I'm, I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not Oral Roberts. I, I'm a businessman. I'm a, I'm a career woman. I'm, I'm a housewife. I'm a, I'm a student. I'm, I'm nobody famous. I'm an unlikely person for God to use. God may use you specifically because you are unlikely in an unlikely way to produce unlikely results. And I'm urging you at the end of this podcast, why don't you just say, God, here am I. Send me as unlikely as I am. You may say, look, I, Lord, I'm not the brightest bulb in the box. I'm not some anointed Pentecostal evangelist. I'm not some great Baptist preacher. I'm an unlikely instrument. But I offer myself to you and that if you will take me even to an unlikely situation, an unlikely time, and use me to produce unlikely results, I'll be very careful to give you all the honor and all the glory. You know, when you come to think of it, we're all unlikely instruments. Why would God choose to use the likes of us? And yet he does and continues to produce in unlikely times, unlikely instruments that cause unlikely results. I know this seems like a discouraging time we're living in right now, but listen, my friend, God loves to move in times just like these. God bless you, my friend. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Leader's Notebook. I'm Mark Rutland. You've been listening to The Leader's Notebook with Dr. Mark Rutland. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review today's podcast. You can follow Dr. Rutland on Twitter at Dr. Mark Rutland or visit his website, drmarkrutland.com. Join us next week for another episode of The Leader's Notebook.